People of God in Christ, I still remember from my school days playing games on the playground and choosing up sides. Uh, We always wanted very much to win the game, at least the boys did, some of the girls too. Um, And so the key to victory was to get the first choice and then to choose, of course, the very best player, the biggest and best of the kids waiting to be chosen uh, to a team. Of course, it wasn't much fun for the kids chosen much later, especially for that one who was chosen last. I'm pretty sure uh, we didn't choose up sides in this way when we were playing under the supervision of a teacher who perhaps uh, formed the two teams in order to avoid those kind of hurt feelings. I also recall that later, uh, later on, the rule began to be followed that um, after the first player was chosen, the other team captain was allowed to choose two players in order to maybe keep it more fair. Because to have the very best, most talented player usually did lead to victory for that team. Well, maybe you know why we start out in this way, because... Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? What if you had God on your team? Not just the very best player, but even God himself, would you not be assured of the victory? And that's what Paul is saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? Are we not ensured the victory? And indeed we are, says Paul. But by way of introduction, we also should consider the question of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And consider which things? It may not be perfectly clear how far back in his letter Paul is referring. Uh, When we started this series on Romans it was pointed out how, how filled with grace and glory is Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. Yes, he begins with that very bad news of sin, and he holds our, our feet to the fire in teaching us how serious sin truly is. But then he, proclaim, he proclaims the gospel, starting already in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul's reference to these things perhaps goes all the way back to the middle of Romans 3. But suffice it for now to review the most recent teachings from Paul. In just the last passage, he teaches that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, that uh, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, uh, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even more, the very last thing we hear before this reference to these things 
is Paul's teaching that God's purpose, according to which he works all things together for good, that God's purpose is from all eternity and is to all eternity. Our salvation goes from God's foreknowledge and predestination from the beginning. It includes the uh, the effectual call of Christ and our justification in this life. But Paul even speaks of our glorification also in the past tense. We have been glorified. So with that review, the, the first point from today's text is God is for us. And let's cover this, this point by focusing briefly on each one of these four words. First, God is for us. Here's what we or here's where we ought to be eager to know God more and, and better by his own revelation of himself. As, as we read our Bibles and, and hear of the God who has, who has acted in history, graciously blessing his people, powerfully working for his people. And as we come to know and believe that that this same God, the true God, the one only God, is for us, we can be greatly comforted. And have you ever just done a a study, even on your own, of of the attributes of God? Under the conviction of sin, each of God's attributes should be a burden to us. Um, we shouldn't want a God who is omnipotent, all-powerful, if His power is against us to judge us. We shouldn't want a God who is omnipresent, everywhere present. If we are trying to run from Him, it's the ultimate case of you can run, but you can't hide. We shouldn't want a God who is omniscient, all-knowing. When He knows every evil word spoken under our, our breath, and even our every sinful thought. Even God's grace and mercy will only vex us if God is not for us. But each of his attributes becomes a treasure to us when we do know that God is indeed for us. His power, his wisdom, his attention to our lives, and even our prayerful hearts the full character of God becomes a blessing to us in our knowledge of Him through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So next, God is for us. Consider the word is first by its verb tense. It's not that God will be for us if we can be good enough and earn His favor. And it's not that God was for us, but no longer now because we haven't been able to keep his favor. So let us also hear the word is by its definiteness and permanence. And we will come back to this sense of assurance when we hear that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then God is for us. And here we can remember that apart from Christ, God would be against us. And for those who are yet outside of Christ, 
God is certainly against them in their sin. This goes back to Romans 1.18, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what a remarkable turnaround, if you think about it. The ultimate 180 from the teaching that God is against us in our sin, that his wrath is aimed at us, that his judgment is coming for our sin, he is opposed to us, to now saying God is for us. Can we hear the glory of this proclamation more clearly now, to hear that God is for us, and can we see the glory of Christ more fully now, to know that it's by Christ and and it's in Christ that God is for us. And so last, under this first point, God is for us. It's not wrong for uh, each of us to hear it personally, and I hope each of us does. Uh, The Christian ought to remind himself, herself, every morning, especially in days of trouble, that God is for me. But think of the significance of of saying God is for us. God is for his people together. Christ is building his church on earth and gathering his church in heaven. And it also reminds us that we are the church. We are a chosen people whom God is treating differently from the rest of the world and only by His grace. If that makes us proud of ourselves, then we haven't understood it. If it makes us oblivious to the state of others still in their sin, then we haven't understood it. But if we are not willing to recognize that God is for us uniquely, then we haven't understood it. And we are missing out on the astounding joy and the amazed wonder of being a recipient of God's sovereign grace. And so put the words back together, and it gives us the call and the opportunity to live our lives with a far different perspective than the world has. We live in the midst of God's good creation. As we know and believe that God is for us, we can look out at creation, we can meditate upon everything we see. The God who made that tree also made me. The God who brings spring after winter and summer after spring and fall after summer and winter again after fall. This same God is my Father in heaven. And he is for me. The goodness and order that we see in creation is the same goodness and order that we can find in our lives as we live here. It's like living uh, on the estate of a very rich man. And not just by his invitation, but because we are born to him. So that everything we see on this On this fabulous estate, everything we see, we can say that belongs to me as it belongs to my Father. Granted, we can claim nothing as our own, 
that does not first belong to God, but neither do we have to, because God is for us. Second point, how do we know that God is for us? The Apostle Paul argues it this way, lest we still doubt that God is for us. In verse 32, he writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a, it's, it's a classic argument from the greater to the lesser, where you, where you point out the, the greater thing that makes the lesser thing all the more obviously true. But in this case, the greater is really the greatest. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So Paul is, is keeping things in the, in the first person plural, using us. God is for us. And how, do we, and how do we know? Because he has given us his son. And Paul is not just talking about the birth of Christ. As much as we love to celebrate the, the birth of Christ, his, his birth wasn't enough. When John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son... It's not just talking about Jesus in the manger. No, God gave us Christ to be born and to live and to suffer and to die. And this is why Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Another passage to consider is Philippians 2 which doesn't talk about the Father giving His Son, but about Christ being willing to be given. Philippians 2, verse 6 speaks of Jesus or Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, <coughs> but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So there's the birth of Christ, His incarnation. But again, there is more. And, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the argument is this, that the proof, or, or, or the, the proof is that God is, is for us, and, and, and so who can be against us is that God has given us his Son. And he's given us his son even to die. And if so, what would he withhold from us among all that we need? The answer is nothing. He will not, or how will he not also graciously give us all things? It's, it, it's not a perfect illustration by any stretch, but, but we might think here of, of having been given uh, a million dollars. Okay, even a billion dollars since we live in the day now of billionaires. But we have been given a, a billion dollars, let's say, then, then why would we doubt that if for some reason we needed a, a quarter, that the same benefactor would, would not freely give us that as well? The weakness of the illustration is that even a, a, a billion dollars doesn't compare to the gift of God's Son to die on the cross for us. 
Also, the quarter certainly belittles the significant things that we do need in this life and some things that we would just like to have. But perhaps the illustration can at least get us thinking about what it means to have Christ as our Savior. Another parallel passage, or at least related passage, is Ephesians 1, again, where Paul is calling for the praise of God by speaking over and over again about the will of God, the will of God. We went to Ephesians 1 last week as we heard about God's predestination, which, uh, which Paul also mentions in Ephesians 1. But, but Paul speaks over and over here about the will of God that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And that the mystery of his will has been made known to us in Christ, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this, brothers and sisters, is why we can freely pray, your will be done. Because there is absolutely no doubt that God's will is set in our favor. Whether we are talking about the foreknowledge and predestination of God, or the purpose of God from all eternity, or the plan of God worked out in time, the thing to see is that God is for us. And if He is for us, who really can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now we might stumble a bit over all things because this does not mean that, uh, that whatever we could ever want, we will get. This shouldn't be hard for us to see because that, that would mean no one would ever win the World Series. Because one young man is praying that one team will win and another young man is praying for the other team to win. So now what is God going to do? His promise is that he will graciously give us all things. So how can God be true to his promise? But that's not the promise to give us whatever we could ever want. The promise instead is, is meant to give us courage and, and hope. Uh, we have a God who is for us. There is no doubt of it because Christ is our Savior. We, uh, and we need to see that, that with Christ as our Savior, we already have all things. If we would not belittle the gift of Christ and our salvation in Him, eternal life and the, and the riches of heaven then we really do need to see that we have already been given all things. And we really can and should pray, your will be done. Even as Jesus prayed, your will be done. As he went to the cross with heaven's glory promised him beyond the cross. And so the third point is the benefit that God is for us. First here, we, we cannot be condemned, at least not to any real effect, by any power or authority in this world. 
We already heard in the first verse of Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there Paul was talking about the condemnation of God. But if so, if God does not condemn us as we are in Christ, then no one else can. In verse 33 and following, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So when we hear that if God is for us, who can be against us, we, we might want to answer, well, a lot of people can be against us. A lot of people are against us. And that's true. There is a very real sense that the whole world is against us as the world rebels against Christ. Jesus even said, if they, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So here Paul is not contradicting Jesus. His point instead is, who can finally succeed in being against us? And the same is true here. The devil can accuse us. Our own flesh can accuse us. Many can condemn us. The world's condemnation, as I think we all know, if we're watching the news, maybe you experience it even personally in the workplace or in your families or in your neighborhoods. But the world's condemnation of Christians is is increasing right here in our own country as more and more good is called evil And evil is called good. But Paul doesn't mean that no one will try to condemn us, just that it doesn't finally matter when God does not condemn us. When God has justified us in Christ. When Christ is at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us. And the second benefit is that we have the assurance of the eternal love of God. The rest of our text, verses 35 to 39, is really, I think, a kind of poem that hardly needs to be taken apart, but rather fits together as a whole. So let me just read it again, starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It really is such a a beautiful declaration of of promise and hope, almost a kind of poem. It, it, It declares the benefit to believers of God's favor. Indeed, His unmerited favor. So let's only notice in closing how, uh, 
how the apostle how the apostle Paul ties all things to Christ. It's the love not just generally of God, but the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? asks Paul. And again, in the end, nothing in all creation, writes Paul, will be able to separate us from the love of God. But it's the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the thing that the that the very Christ, because of whom the world is against us, is the Christ who is the proof of God's favor toward us. Which means if we would have God's favor, then we must live in a world that will oppose and condemn us. And if we would make peace with the world, then we must lose the favor of God in Christ. So let the world oppose and condemn us. We have Christ and God's favor in Christ. We have salvation in Christ and the eternal blessings of God in him. Paul writes of our assurance in life and in death, of things present and of things to come. So come what may, in life and in death, we enjoy the favor of God in Jesus Christ. Romans 8 begins with that glorious promise again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with this glorious promise that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first promise, no condemnation from God, is given against our struggle with sin. The last promise for the enduring love of God in Christ is given against the challenge of the world. So however we are challenged and tempted to doubt, whether by the flesh or by the world, the good news of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's favor. Christ is ours and we are His And nothing can change that. Amen. Let's pray. A glorious passage of your word, O God, because it gives us the glorious gospel, the wonderful good news of your favor to us in Christ. We are your people, and we have your love, and we always will. So may we stand firm on your promises and enjoy your favor each and every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.